Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Lara Pizzorno, MDIV, who is author of Your Bones. Today we will discuss Your Bones. A member of the American Medical Writers Association with 29 years of experience writing for physicians and the public, Lara is editor of Longevity Medicine Review, as well as senior medical editor for Salugenesis, Inc., and Integrative Medicine Advisors, LLC. Your Bones, now in its second edition, has also been translated into German and Polish. She's contributing author of the Textbook of Functional Medicine, and has written articles for Integrative Medicine, a Clinician's Journal, and Textbook of Natural Medicine. She's the lead author of Natural Medicine Instructions for Patients, co-author of the Encyclopedia of Healing Foods, and editor of the World's Healthiest Foods Essential Guide for the Healthiest Way of Eating. Lara, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. When we talk about bones... Just going really back to basics, what are we talking about? Well, the skeleton is a obviously very important part of our body, um, and it's not just you know the scaffolding upon which everything else hangs. It's actually a very um, active organ, uh, which you know it makes sense because our bones are spread throughout our body, and our bodies are pretty efficient. So our bones are used to create immune cells and to deliver various. Uh, really important compounds for our health throughout our body. And um, we we build the most bone when we're children. We're supposed to be have achieved our maximum bone mass building by the time we're in our early 30s. Um, and then as uh, as we age, we start to use up that bank account that we've built by withdrawing little bits of bone from it. If things work properly, uh, the amount of bone that's withdrawn is very minimal and it doesn't affect our, you know, our skeleton and we don't get stooped over or break bones from osteoporosis. But if things are not done well, if we don't accrue enough bone mass as young people or if there are a number of things happening in our lives that make us lose bone more rapidly than we ought to, uh, then we can have some problems, and probably the best-known problem is osteoporosis, which means porous bone. Osteo means bone, and um, porosis means porous, so it basically means bones with holes in them that become so fragile that we then, you know, break a, break our hip just by uh, walking down the stairs or stepping off a curb. When we talk about bones and this skeletal structure that you were talking about. We're also talking about the relationship of the bones with the rest of the body. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the relationship between bones with problems, I'm going to call them, and other conditions such as cardiac disease, right? Right. Yeah, there's a huge interaction. Uh, People with cardiovascular disease very often also have low bone mass and end up having bone, you know, osteoporosis. Uh, the reason for this is that anything that causes chronic low-grade inflammation in the body, okay, which certainly is uh, something that happens when you have cardiovascular disease, your vasculature, your veins are inflamed um, because for, for a n- number of reasons, but the bottom line is they're inflamed. 
And that chronic low-grade inflammation activates a kind of specialized cell in the body called an osteoclast, um, O-S-T-E-O-C-L-A-S-T, which breaks down, its job is to break down old crummy bone so it can be replaced with new healthy bone. But if it gets activated too frequently, it breaks down more bone than you want to break down, and then you develop osteoporosis. So anything that causes inflammation, um, obesity causes chronic low-grade inflammation, diabetes is an instance of chronic low-grade inflammation going on. Um, All these things will excessively activate osteoclasts and cause bone loss. According to the National Osteoporosis Foundation data released in April of 2013, somewhere around 56 million Americans, so just in the United States, 56 million people have some kind of bone disease or risk for bone disease, low bone mass for lack of a better word, unless we use osteopenia, all the large medical terms, right? How is it that so many people are afflicted, and do they know it? Uh, Most older women now are being tested for excessive bone loss. Um, So many older women are, you know, people over like age 50 are aware But uh, many people, especially younger people, are not aware that they are not building the bone that they're supposed to be building when they're young so that they have enough bone to last them throughout their lives. Um, And also, bone is constantly remodeling. So even if you've managed to not accrue the amount of bone that you really should have, you can still help your body build more bone. So it's it's rectifiable. But... um, I think a lot of people are not aware that they are at risk for osteoporosis, and uh, particularly among Americans of Hispanic origin, the statistics for osteoporosis are much, much higher um, than than other Americans. Hispanic women have a 31% greater likelihood of having osteoporosis, and um, this is in... In comparison, uh, to put it in comparison, if you are uh, um, a, a white American and you're a woman, okay, you have a 43% chance of developing um, osteoporosis. If you are a Hispanic of Hispanic descent, you have an 86% chance of developing osteoporosis. So it's it's quite scary. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't aware that they're at risk, and the first time they become aware is when they either go in for, you know, a DEXA, which is the um, x-ray exam that's given to older people to evaluate what, where their bone density is. Uh, typically, these are done right around the time that a woman is going through menopause, um, or they break a bone, and then they're told, gee, you have osteoporosis, and otherwise they wouldn't have wouldn't have known that they were even at risk for it because it's a silent disease. Our bones don't, don't uh, alert us by causing pain when they're thinning. They just get really thin and then they break. Lara, let's go back for one second just to clarify. You said that if you are a white woman, you have a 43% 
likelihood of having osteoporosis. And if you're a Hispanic woman, you have an 86% chance. Did I understand those correctly? Among Hispanic Americans, 53% of men and 86% of women will develop low bone mass, not, not necessarily osteoporosis, but they'll have bone, significant bone thinning. Okay. Um, among people who are not of Hispanic origin, among non-Hispanic whites, low bone mass um, and then potentially osteoporosis is projected to develop in 43% of men, I'm sorry, and 77% of women. Sorry, I read the stati- I have the statistics uh, written backwards in my file. So it's, it's 77% of American women who are not of Hispanic descent and not black. Uh, American blacks have a much lower incidence of osteoporosis and a lower risk than either whites or people of Hispanic descent. Now, of course, we know that Hispanic is an ethnicity as opposed to a race. Do you have a breakdown of Hispanic likelihood of developing osteoporosis by race? Because I noticed that when you shared the non-Hispanic white earlier, it excluded Hispanics, the 77%. So among Hispanic whites, do we know, and you're saying... They they haven't done the research at that level. Um, the, The Census Bureau defines Hispanics as um, individuals who indicate their origins are Mexican-American, Chicano, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Central or South American. So when they're doing the studies, those are the groups that they consider Hispanic Americans, but they haven't broken them out any more than that. So in summary, Hispanic men have a 53% likelihood and Hispanic women an 86% likelihood of having bones that are too thinned. Did, did I get that right? Exactly. And you said a minute ago that osteoporosis does not have any symptom. Osteo thinning of the bones does not bring any symptoms. Is it, There's no pain. Is there any kind of, for example, creaking or noises of the bones I hear people talking about my bones or my joints are making noises is there any relationship between that and bone thinning or is that totally separate I don't think it's totally separate but typically you know what happens with osteoporosis is you see people developed as kind of a stooped over posture Um, you know the dowager's hump is the really extreme version of that but if you um if when you were 20, you were 5'6", and when you turn 50, you're 5'4", or 5'5", you've lost an inch in height, and that's from bone compressing. So if you lose height, you know, if you're shorter than you used to be 20 years ago, um, that's of concern. So that's a potential symptom, but typically... The first symptom of osteoporosis, unless you're checked, you know, to uh, see what your bone, bone density actually is, is that you have a fracture. They're called fragility fractures. You break a wrist or, you know, worst case scenario, you, you break your hip. And that is the first symptom. And that's why it's so important to be checked, to know what your bone density is, um, to check your vitamin D levels. I hope we'll get a chance to talk about how important vitamin D is for bone health and um, to see where you are and what your risks are, and then to do what you need to do to ensure that your bones stay healthy. 
Now, one of the things that used to happen is that people would say, well, my grandmother, for example, fell, and when she fell, she broke her hip. But now what they're saying is that she actually broke her hip, and because she broke her hip, she fell. And this goes to the fragility that you're talking about. And they're also saying that the chance of recovering completely after having one of these incidents, such as breaking a hip, is a lot more, the, the chance is a lot lower than you would expect. The quality of life of someone who has such a traumatic experience in their life because of a bone fracture is devastating. Can you tell us about some of those numbers if you have them handy? I don't have the exact numbers handy, um, but I can tell you that, you know, life never returns to normal. The important thing is that when once someone is ha- has broken a hip, life never returns to normal for that person. Um, many people need to be need to have assistance uh, with their living, their daily living ever after that. And many people die within a year or two after breaking a hip um, because it is so incapacitating. And it's much worse for men. Uh, I think it's one out of every three women will die, and uh, one out of every two men will die within a year of having a broken hip. Um, it's, it's something you really want to avoid, if at all possible, and it's avoidable. You know, you just need to know what your bone density is, what things you're doing in your life that are causing you to lose bone too quickly, and then you can fix those. Almost all of them are fixable and easily fixable and naturally fixable. And then you can provide your bones with the nutrients that they require and they will rebuild. So it's it's something you want to avoid and, um, and it, it, it's not that hard to do so. The full title of your book is Your Bones, How You Can Prevent Osteoporosis and Have Strong Bones for Life Naturally, which is what you just said a minute ago, that you can, it is in your hands, it is possible for you to be aware and to do what's necessary in order for you to keep your bones healthy. Now, there are some risk factors that you may not be able to change, such as genetics, right? Right, but you can, so I'm the poster child for the genetic issue. Every woman in my family um, that I know about, all the generations I know about, has died earlier than they should have because of osteoporosis. I am now, I just turned 65. I feel wonderful. Uh, My bones are in fabulous shape. I figured out what I needed to do, what, you know, what nutrients specifically my bones really needed that they weren't getting. And once I provided that, my, my bones rebuilt. So you don't have to, if you have some kind of genetic susceptibility, if osteoporosis runs in your family, what that means is there's something, either there's something in your environment that's causing a problem for you that's worse, you know, than for other people, or you're lacking some nutrients in a sufficient amount for you, okay, you may need more vitamin D, for example, um, I certainly do, than the average person. So you can identify what those things are, and it, it's really not all that hard um, to do so. I go through every single thing that causes bone loss in the book, and then I discuss all the nutrients that are required, 
and how to identify how much you, not somebody else, but you specifically need. And once you figure that out, your bones will just automatically uh, rebuild. We are, we come pre-programmed to have healthy bones. It's only if we don't give them what they need to rebuild or we do something that causes constant harm to them that we have a problem. So you can fix genetics. It's, it's not a sentence that you're stuck with. And it's not too late even if you are predisposed. There are things that you can do is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. I was in my early 40s. I was well on the way to have very significant osteoporosis well before menopause, which is when, you know, the bone loss issues typically kick in for most people. But um, in my family, my genetics make me more susceptible to losing bones. So, um, you know, I reversed that. And trust me, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I have so many factors that predispose me to not having healthy bones. And I have wonderful bones. And it really wasn't all that difficult. I, um, I'm fortunate in that I'm married to a physician uh, who's one of the leading um, naturopathic doctors in the world. And we have a lot of friends involved in research. And we both are editors of different medical journals. So I travel in medical circles. And I have the gift of being exposed to all the cutting-edge research. So that's why I was able to figure all this stuff out early. Um, otherwise, it wasn't available to most people when I was, you know, doing the genetic testing and, and these things 20 years ago. They were just developing them. But now it is. It's available to virtually anybody. It's not expensive. Um, and it's, it's not that hard to do. Now, it's interesting because you talked about medicine and medical doctors. And I don't have any numbers. I don't know if there are any out there that tell us exactly what percentage of these millions of Americans who have low bone mass or the 9 million adults that the foundation says have osteoporosis are being treated. But I would venture that the majority of people are being treated with patent potent medicines. Why is that not good? You say in your book that those medicines have the opposite effect of what they are intended to do. Would you tell us about that? Sure. Um, there are three basic uh, large classifications of drugs that are currently being used to uh, supposedly treat people with bone loss issues. And they actually, um, two of the groups, the bisphosphonates, um, like uh, Fosamax, I'm sure you've heard of Fosamax, and uh, Denosumab is the other one. Um, that's uh, um, Okay, well, there's, the, there's anti-resorptive drugs, and then there are drugs that are supposed to help build. And both of the different groups have problems. And the problem with the... The key problem with the bisphosphonates like Fosamax and uh, Denosumab, the, one of the forms of that is called Exgeva. The other one is, starts with a P, um, pro-something. Sorry, oh, this is so embarrassing. I know all this stuff very well, but um, at any rate, uh, with the bisphosphonates and Denosumab, what they do is they poison the osteoclasts, which are the specialized cells in the body, whose job it is to remove old crummy bone. And so that doesn't happen. So your bone mass supposedly goes up, but what you're retaining is not healthy bone. 
And so within two to three years, um, some people have even less than two years, the bones become so fragile that they just break. And uh, we're seeing a lot of other side effects from the bisphosphonates and denosumab. They, um, they also cause a condition called osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is where the jawbone rots, basically. Um, necrosis is death, and osteo is bone, so osteonecrosis of the jaw is jawbone death. What's going on there is that we, when we chew, we constantly create tiny little microfractures in our jaw, and normally the osteoclasts clear out that damaged bone and it's replaced. But if you're taking a bisphosphonate or denosumab, then you don't get the chance to replace that damaged bone, and so after a while, the jawbone just starts to die. So that's another serious side effect with those. Um, the third most serious side effect with the bisphosphonates and denosumab is that it has been, both uh, types of drugs have been linked to a greatly increased risk of esophageal cancer. Those are the three worst things. Um, they also have a, a variety of other nasty side effects that I discuss in the book. Um, but I think those are the three worst. The other major drug used for bone health is called teriparatide, and the uh, consumer name for that one is Fortale. And what that does is it artificially uh, boosts your body's production of parathyroid hormone, which supposedly um, it does two things. It activates the osteoclasts that break down bone, but it also activates the osteoblasts, which are specialized cells that help your body produce new bone. And the theory is that it's going to do more osteoplast activation than osteoclast activation. So the end result is that you build bone. The, and that sounds like, you know, a good thing, but the problem with artificially boosting your parathyroid hormone levels is that it also activates uh, cortisol, which is a hormone that our bodies produce that, if elevated, um, causes bone loss. And so what they're finding uh, is that they don't know, you know, they're seeing cortisol go up in people on Forteo, and they don't even know if you stop taking the Forteo if your cortisol levels are going to return to normal. Um, in, in Europe, uh, where they've done more of the of the research on Forteo, uh, they have limited its use to 18 to 24 months because of these concerns. The other concern with Forteo is that when they were doing the original research on it to see if it could be used for humans, they did rat studies. And 45% of the rats developed a very aggressive form of bone cancer when they were taking Forteo. So what the FDA in the U.S. said well, uh, was that, well, humans are not rats, and this probably isn't going to happen to humans, but they don't know. And the issue is that cancer is typically a slow-growing disease, so someone who takes Forteo in 10 years may find that they have bone cancer, and they just don't know. The studies have not been done, the drugs have not been approved long enough, and they, and they don't know. So basically they're running an experiment. Um, the experiment is on us. And what's worst about the drugs, in my opinion, is that even if you take one of these drugs and you avoid all the side effects, 
and your bone loss supposedly um, is helped for a little bit, the maximum use for the for the bisphosphonates and denosumab is being recommended to be no more than three years at this time, and uh, teriparatide uh, forteo is recommended to be used for no more than two years. So within a few years, you're going to be back to square one, facing the same problem that you had to begin with, which is that you're losing too much bone, and you're going to have to deal with it some other way. So why expose yourself to the risks associated with these drugs when they are not going to offer a long-term solution and have a lot of very nasty side effects? So um, that is pretty much my discussion of the drugs. There have been, although in in, uh, your bones in the book, there's probably about 40 pages worth of discussion of all the adverse effects of the drugs and all the research done on the drugs, and it's very well referenced to the PubMed uh, peer-reviewed medical studies. So if you're going to see your doctor and they want you to be on one of these drugs, you can take the book in and say, gee, you know, I'd I'd like to consider a more natural approach to taking care of my bones um, because there's a lot of research that shows that these drugs are both potentially very harmful and um, also that they can only be used for a few years. Uh, I guess lastly, I should mention that with the bisphosphonates like Fosamax and Boniva, um, and the and Denosumab, um, whose consumer name I continue to forget. Exgiva is one of them, but there's it's I think it's Prolia, P-R-O-L-I-A is the other consumer name for Denosumab. Um, these these drugs have been shown to actually increase risk of fracture within as little as two years. So people are having a hip break or even both uh, femurs break at once from using these drugs because they prevent normal bone remodeling, so you cannot lay down healthy new bone. And that is a huge issue. You're taking the drug to try to prevent bone loss, but it's actually keeping around bone that's so crummy that it's it's not any help to you anyway. Uh, There have been several studies done now that show that a more natural approach to taking care of your bones is both safe and effective, and it can be continued, you know, throughout the rest of your life uh, because it really involves nut- nutrients that bones need, um, a healthy diet, exercise, you know, weight-bearing exercise, um, and avoiding the things that we now know cause excessive bone loss um, that are typical of the standard American lifestyle. So um, I hope we can discuss some of the things that you can do to positively uh, take care of your bones naturally and safely. Just to close the patent medicine part of the discussion, I think one of the big challenges for many people that are open to the idea of exercise, lifestyle, and nutrition toward to building healthy bones is that when they consult with their physicians, many of them are not comfortable with this approach how can they deal with this? What do they do when they go to their doctor and their doctor wants to put them on one of these several medications that you've described that actually have the opposite effect that are causing harm rather than good? What, how, can they, how can they deal with that if this is the wall that they encounter? Well, I've had a lot of women write me now. You know, my book was recommended on the National Osteoporosis Forum. There was a lot of discussion about it there. And um, I've now had many, many women write me and tell me that they 
take my book with them to the doctor's office and leave it for their doctor um, and just say, this is what I want to try, this is why, here's the research, uh, these are the studies that show that the drugs are really harmful. And um, in the book, there's a full discussion of all the side effects of the drugs. I just mentioned some of the worst of them, but there are many, many side effects of these drugs that people experience. Um, and so a lot of women have become, uh, they've, just, they've just refused to take them. And when they have trouble with their doctor, they either find another doctor um, who's more willing to listen to something reasonable, or, um, like I said, I've had a number of people write me and just say, I took, my, I took your book in with me, and I showed my doctor the research, and I got my doctor to try to be helpful to me. So if we look at the lifestyle approach that you have found successful at a personal level and that many studies, if I understand correctly, advocate, the first step is to look, of course, at your nutrition. And what would you say are the essential issues to be aware of in terms of nutrition and the health of your bones? Well, I think the first thing to really recognize is that the standard American diet, um, for which the acronym is very aptly, the SAD diet, has a lot of factors in it that cause excessive bone loss. Um, It's too high in protein, which causes the body to uh, become in kind of an acid state constantly. And when the body is too acidic, when the pH in the bloodstream is too acidic, the body will remove calcium from your bones to make your bloodstream and your cellular balance more alkaline because there are many cellular reactions that cannot take place if the environment within the cells is too acid. So if you have too high an intake of protein, um, you're going to be constantly too acid. Your body's going to be constantly removing calcium from your bones to restore balance so that your metabolism can function. Um, people in the U.S., I don't think we realize how much protein we actually consume and how much we actually need. A woman who is 5 feet 4 inches needs about 44 grams of protein a day. That's all. Um, if you're 5 6, then, you know, 47 grams of protein. If you're, um, you know, even somebody who's close to 5 9, okay, needs less than 60. The average intake of protein in adults in the U.S. ranges between 91 and 113 grams of protein a day, more than double what we need. And so what's happening is the body is constantly being too acidic and bone calcium is being withdrawn from bone. So one thing to look at is how much protein is your diet supplying. Okay, I explain how to do this um, in the book, and I give the charts of the commonly eaten foods that are high in protein and the amounts so that you can figure out what your actual diet is giving to you, and then you can see if it's too high. Um, There are a few people who don't consume enough protein. That's a problem as well, but for the majority of us, uh, we we eat too much. Another problem with the standard American diet is refined sugar, um, everybody knows that, you know, all the process, many processed foods are loaded with sugar and we, we have uh, soda pop and candy and the refined grains, you know, the cereals with all the added sugar and the muffins and the cakes and the cookies and all the things that we all really enjoy. But if we eat too much of them, uh, once again, they make our metabolism too acid and so calcium gets withdrawn from the bone. 
Um, we don't consume enough of the things that we need to consume, you know, the healthy foods that give us the nutrients that our bones need. Um, many of us are not getting enough calcium. I know in the Hispanic uh, population, at least in the research, it says that people of Hispanic origin more frequently have trouble digesting lactose, which is the sugar in milk, and so uh, avoid milk and milk products. And when milk is a major source of calcium in the American diet, if you're not eating it, um, and then you're not eating a lot of uh, leafy greens are a really good source of calcium in the American diet, but people don't eat them. So if you're not getting enough calcium, you know, you're, you can't build bone without calcium. Um, other nutrients that are not supplied by the standard American diet that are critical for bone health are uh, vitamin K and magnesium. Vitamin K is responsible for activating the proteins, the enzymes, that put calcium into bone and keep it out of your arteries and your breasts and your kidneys and your brain, where you certainly don't want it to deposit. If you don't get enough vitamin K, those enzymes don't get turned on, and when you ingest calcium and absorb calcium, uh, you, your body may put it in your in your heart or in your veins instead of in your bones, okay? So that's a big problem. Um, we also don't get enough magnesium, uh, which is another mineral that's in leafy greens, which we're not eating. And um, magnesium is a really important component in bone. If you don't have enough magnesium, uh, many things happen that make your body more inflammatory. And if you're inflamed, then you activate osteoclasts and you withdraw too much uh, calcium from your bones to keep them healthy. Uh, we also don't get enough of the B vitamins in the standard American diet. Um, again, uh, they're very widely spread um, in leafy greens. Folate, for example, is in leafy greens. Uh, we take, how to explain about the B vitamins. So there's uh, several B vitamins that we need. We need B6, we need B12, we need folate and riboflavin. And together, those B vitamins work to prevent our cells from producing a compound called homocysteine. Uh, it's H-O-M-O-C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E. Uh, -E. Homocysteine is really inflammatory. It builds up in your cells if you don't have enough of the B vitamins around to metabolize it properly. And it leaches out into the bloodstream and it goes everywhere throughout the body and it causes I describe it in the book as a terrorist with an acid spray gun. It just uh, destroys all kinds of things, and it makes your body very inflamed. Uh, it's one of the causes of cardiovascular disease and heart attacks and, um, and, a, and a bunch of other problems as well as osteoporosis. So um, that causes osteoclasts to activate, and they withdraw too much bone. Uh, we don't get enough vitamin C in our diets. Um, we need that to stimulate an enzyme called alkaline phosphatase, which is involved in uh, the bone-building process that occurs through osteoblasts, those specialized cells that build bone, they need vitamin C to work properly. And if you don't get enough vitamin C, then you don't make enough of these osteoblast bone-building cells. Um, boy, there's just so many things we, you know, we smoke Cigarettes or we're exposed to secondhand smoke. Um, cigarettes have both cadmium 
and nicotine in them, both of which cause problems for bone. Cadmium stimulates osteoclasts, and it inhibits the inactivation of cortisol, that um, inflammatory uh, hormone that we make. If it's around too, too, at too high a level, it will cause bone loss. And then also nicotine um, is in cigarette smoke, and that kills osteoblasts the specialized cells that build bone. And it also lowers levels of, um, of an enzyme called osteocalcin, which you have to have not only to build bone, but for insulin sensitivity. So think obesity, weight control. Um, so you really don't want to smoke. And then the last thing that the uh, nicotine does is it increases your body's clearance of estrogen. So you remove estrogen a lot more quickly. Uh, we haven't really talked about estrogen yet, but um, as you know, when women go into menopause, their estrogen levels drop. And estrogen is really important for keeping down inflammation in a woman's body and also for the whole bo bone building process. Um, estrogen is involved in pulling magnesium into bone and calcium into bone and not letting osteoclasts stay activated too long. So when we lose the estrogen, we get a lot more inflammatory and we activate osteoclasts a lot more and we also are less able to um, build bone properly. Uh, let's see, other issues um, in the American diet, um, alcohol. You know, if they've shown that one drink a day is good for women and two drinks a day are fine for men, but if you're having more than that, you're going to lose bone. Uh, it, alcohol, again, is, becomes inflammatory at higher levels and causes that whole same cascade of uh, too many bone-destroying cells and not enough bone rebuilding. Um, see. Would you talk a little bit about uh, calcium and vitamin D? Sure. Um, so there's, you know, calcium is, everybody knows that calcium is really important for bone. Uh, most Americans don't get enough, um, surprisingly, or if they, even if they're taking calcium, they don't, absorb it well because they have stomach acid issues where they're not producing enough stomach acid. Um, do you want me to talk about the different forms of calcium or, you know, yes. why we might not be getting enough? Or I, I think it's that? important to clarify that, that not all calcium varieties are the same and the relationship between calcium and other vitamins because calcium doesn't get along with all the other vitamins, right? They don't play well. Right. right. Okay, so the... There are several different forms of calcium that are available. The most, the cheapest form, and so it's going to be the form that you see in the, you know, the less expensive supplements, um, is calcium carbonate. And that form is really not very well absorbed. Uh, most people only absorb about 4% of the calcium carbonate that they consume. The other form in supplements that is widely available is calcium citrate. And that's much better absorbed. You absorb about, oh, somewhere between 24 and 30% of that. But to absorb either calcium carbonate or calcium citrate, uh, even calcium citrate most effectively, you have to be producing some stomach acid because calcium has to be, it's a um, chemical process called solubilization, so it has to be solubilized to make it able to be absorbed from the intestines into the body. And people, you know, everybody um, or many, many people nowadays are taking 
stomach acid blockers. They're taking Tums or antacids or Nexium or Prilosec or little purple pills because they get an upset stomach. And what people don't realize is that very often the symptoms of an upset stomach from no or not enough stomach acid are the same as the symptoms that you get when you have too much stomach acid. So if you take uh, these stomach acid blockers, it's going to make you unable to absorb your calcium. So that's a, that's a, one of the huge causes, I think, of, of uh, bone loss in the United States. People, Some people even use Tums. You know, they, they advertise that Tums are a source of calcium because they have calcium carbonate in them, but they make it impossible for your body to absorb that calcium when you take the Tums because they neutralize any stomach acid and you have to have some stomach acid available. So the best thing to do um, for using calcium uh, supplements is to use calcium citrate and to take it with a meal because when you eat, your body produces stomach acid, and then that helps you solubilize the calcium and and also break down your food properly so that you can absorb the rest of the nutrients in your food, and then you can absorb the calcium in your food. What are your thoughts about strontium, natural strontium, as opposed to synthetic strontium? Uh, so the synthetic form of strontium is not uh, used as widely in the U.S. yet. Uh, fortunately for us, it's being, being used in England um, quite a bit. But um, the synthetic form of strontium is called strontium ranolate, and it is a combination of natural strontium with a new-to-nature compound called ranoleic acid. And it's been linked to um, a variety of really nasty side effects. Uh, it causes deep vein blood clots to form, um, and, and the risk for that is pretty high. Uh, the last research that's come out in the medical journals in Europe, the, the title of the last study that came out was um, strontium ranolate, which is called protolose. Don't use this. It has too many adverse side effects. That was the actual title on the medical journal article. Uh, strontium citrate, on the other hand, has been shown to be really helpful for bone and to be very safe. It's, it both activates osteoblasts, the bone-building cells, and tunes down the activation of osteoclasts. And it, it also incorporates uh, partially into bone so that it becomes part of the bone structure itself and helps form um, healthy, strong bones. The only concern about using strontium citrate, the natural form, is that you want to make sure that you're consuming twice as much calcium as you do strontium. There were studies done, boy, it's like 30 years ago now. There have only been two studies done that showed any possibility of adverse side effects from strontium citrate, the natural form. And those studies, uh, the first of those studies was an animal study where they gave little baby rats whose bones were growing uh, only strontium and they made sure that they didn't get any calcium. And the rat's bones didn't grow properly because, you know, we need calcium. Okay, strontium can be helpful, but calcium is the primary mineral in bone. The other study that they did looked at a human population in an area of Turkey where strontium is very high in the soil. And initially they thought that it was causing some rickets in little children, but then when they looked at it more carefully, 
they found that the children who were breastfed and who were therefore getting plenty of calcium from their mother's breast milk didn't have any problems. It was only the children that did not receive enough calcium that developed some ricket-like bone abnormalities. So once again, it's very important to make sure that if you're using strontium, which has been shown to be helpful, um, that you consume twice as much calcium as strontium. Typically, the amount of strontium that's recommended is uh, 680 milligrams a day. And in the more recent papers, they're now seeing that once you start rebuilding bone, you can cut that back and take even less. But the recommended amounts for calcium are at least 1,200 uh, milligrams a day. And, of course, it's always better if you can eat your way to the vitamins and the minerals than to take the supplements. But if you can't get the nutrition from a natural source that you eat, then if I understand correctly, you're saying go ahead and take those supplements because it could make a very big difference. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there, and there are some key – I think the three key nutrients to talk about in regards to bone health um, are – Calcium, of course, which we already talked about a little bit. Vitamin D um, and vitamin K, particularly vitamin K2. So let, let's talk about those for a minute. Uh, the three of them work together. Okay, Vitamin D is responsible for increasing your body's ability to absorb calcium from your intestines. It increases it a lot. If you don't have enough vitamin D on board, you're going to be much, much less able to absorb calcium, even if it's solubilized, even if you, you know, have adequate stomach acid. If you don't have enough vitamin D, you will not absorb calcium well. Um, people think, especially people, I know you're in Florida, so people in the South feel that because, you know, it's sunny and you get to be outside more um, and are tan, that you're get, probably getting enough vitamin D because your body makes it in your skin when you're, when you're exposed to sunlight. But there are a couple of concerns about that. Um, I think everybody should be tested to see what their actual vitamin D blood levels are. And that's a really easy test to do. It's a simple blood draw, and um, you can easily get checked to see if your vitamin D levels are high enough for you to be absorbing calcium properly. Um, you... Um, so with vitamin D, you, I explain about all the tests in the book, but briefly, um, you want 60 to 80 nanograms per ml of vitamin D. That's what you want to have show up on your blood test results. If it's lower than that, uh, you don't have enough vitamin D. They used to think that 30 nanograms per ml was adequate, and now they know that it's not. It's borderline uh, deficiency of vitamin D. People have, even in the South, are not um, getting enough vitamin D. I think there's reasons for that. Um, the primary ones are that we wear sunscreen, okay, because we don't want to get wrinkles and we don't want to get skin cancer. And even an SPF 8 of sunscreen is going to reduce your body's ability to absorb and produce vitamin D in your skin by 95%. People, you know, we wear hats and sunglasses and long sleeves and sunscreen because we don't want to get burned, but you really have to be out in the sun without sunscreen and with as much of your body, you know, uncovered as you can uncover without getting arrested uh, for at least a half an hour to produce 
any kind of um, adequate amount of vitamin D, and that needs to happen regularly. So it's easier to just take a vitamin D supplement. Um, first, you should get checked to see what your vitamin D levels are, and if they're not adequate, then you're going to want to take a vitamin D supplement. They're very inexpensive. Um, you, the form that you want is vitamin D3. Okay, There are two forms that are sold in supplements, vitamin D2 and vitamin D3. The D2 form is a plant form. It's not as well absorbed and it's not as active in the body as the D3 form, which is um, a, an oilier form. Uh, so that's what you want to look for with vitamin D. And, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, they've done studies of young people in Hawaii, okay, of um, various racial origins, you know, mixed mixed groups of people, and they found that even young people who were out in the sun uh, not wearing that much sunscreen and were out in the sun for several hours every day did not have optimal levels of vitamin D in their blood. And they were trying to figure out what was causing this. And one of the things that they came up with as a possible reason for why these young people who were out in the sun not wearing sunscreen were still not producing enough vitamin D was that, you know, you're out in the sun, you get sweaty, right? So you come in and you scrub yourself all over. Well, the vitamin D forms in the outer layer of the skin. It's like a slightly oily substance in the outer layer of your skin, and it has to penetrate in through your skin to get into your bloodstream to supply your body with that vitamin D. Well, if you come right in after being outside and you wash it all off, okay, with soap, you know, you scrub it yourself, um, you're going to rinse away all that, that pre-vitamin D that needs to get into your body. So what they've recommended now is that instead of using soap everywhere, okay, you just, you know, wash your armpits and your groin and your feet and, you know, maybe your hands or your face with um, soap, but for the rest, just rinse off with warm water so that you maintain the vitamin D on your skin and give it a chance to penetrate. It takes uh, six to eight hours for it to get into your skin, from your skin into your bloodstream. So that was um, that's something to be aware of with vitamin D. In terms of the other really critical nutrient for use of calcium and building bone, um, that's vitamin K. And it's a specific form of vitamin K that we really don't get much of in our diets here in the U.S. Uh, it's K2. And the best source of that is a fermented soybean product that people eat regularly in Japan, uh, which is one reason why there's so much less osteoporosis there. And that fermented soybean product is called natto, N-A-T-T-O. Is that um, the one you said tastes awful? It, yeah, it smells like dirty gym socks, and it tastes like dirty gym socks. I mean, it's really disgusting. It's slimy. It's it's an acquired taste. Um, even There are even Japanese people who, you know, if they weren't brought up eating it, um, who don't really care for the taste of it. And it's it's not easily available in the U.S. either. So if you if you have a source of it and you like it, great. You know, that's a really terrific way to get your vitamin K2. But for most of us, it's easier to just take it as a supplement. Um, you can get some vitamin K2 in teas, but um, as I mentioned before, I think uh, in the Hispanic population, American population of Hispanic descent, uh, there's a fair amount of lactose intolerance. And so if you are lactose intolerant and you're avoiding dairy, you, know, you can try to eat the more like hardened cheeses. Um, many cheeses have virtually no lactose in them, and so they're digestible. Or you can use uh, yogurt. 
but the cheeses, the hardened cheeses, have some of this vitamin K2 in them, but you'd have to eat a lot of cheese every day to get a decent amount. I mean, you'd have to eat, oh, probably four ounces of cheese a day. That's that's a lot of cheese. So if you love cheese and you're not lactose intolerant and you can tolerate um, dairy proteins, great. That would be a good way to get your K2. But otherwise, I think the simplest way is to just take a K2 supplement. Um, And the reason that you want to do that is that vitamin K2 works with vitamin D, okay? You consume your calcium either in your food or as a supplement. When it gets into your intestines, the vitamin D helps your body absorb it and bring it to your cells, okay? But what happens once it gets into the bloodstream, okay, is there are different enzymes in your body that have to be activated that then take that calcium and make sure that it goes into bone, and they actually push it out of your arteries so you can't get calcified arteries and, um, uh, you know, heart problems and and, uh, high blood pressure problems from the calcium because you don't want it depositing in your in your blood veins, okay, in your, in your vasculature. So what the K2 does is it activates osteocalcin, which is the specialized enzyme that pulls calcium into bone, and it also activates another protein called matrix GLA, G-L-A, matrix GLA protein. And that protein actively pushes calcium out of your arteries and out of your heart and out of your brain and out of your kidneys and out of your breasts, right? All the places that you don't want to calcify. So um, to get that, you need about what the most current research is showing is that to effectively build bone, okay, you need about 180 micrograms of vitamin K2 every day. And you need a specific form of the vitamin K2. This is complicated. I tried to explain it all in detail in the book. I hope you can follow me. You need um, a form of vitamin K2 called MK7. Okay, there are different forms of vitamin K2. The two that are sold as supplements are MK4 and then MK7, which is the form that is much better to take. If you take MK4, you have to take a lot more. You need to take 15 milligrams of MK4, and you need to do it every six hours because your body clears MK4 out of your system within six hours, Um, maybe as long as eight hours, but no longer than that. And in the research where they've used MK4, because it's available as a supplement, that's what they did. They gave people 15 milligrams every six to eight hours, and then they get good results. If you'd rather just take one small pill once a day, okay, then if you take the MK7 form, you only need 180 micrograms okay, once a day. And that will build up in your body. It's metabolized a different way. Uh, MK7 is put into cholesterol, and cholesterol is broken down a lot more slowly than triglycerides, which is another a, a form of fat. Um, that our bodies use to move fat around the body. And the triglycerides break down really quickly um, within six to eight hours, and that's where MK4 is put. It's put into triglycerides. So it's cleared from the system a lot faster than MK7, which is put into cholesterol. One of the concerns that comes to my mind when thinking about all of these 
different nutrients that are essential to your health and especially your bones as we're discussing here is that as you have just outlined not all vitamins are the same even not all forms of a vitamin are the same you pointed to D3 being the better option and K2 being the better option and different kinds of calcium and so on and so forth and there are so many choices when you go to purchase supplements in so many different brands that it is truly intimidating. Even if you go to look at the research, there are no studies that I could find that can truly point to a brand or a type of supplement, say a, a multivitamin, that you can take. What insights can you share with us, Lara, that can help us identify a course of action? Should you be buying these individually, say a D3 by itself, a K2 by itself? What what suggestions would you share with us? Well, I don't usually recommend a specific product, um, but I will recommend one because it combines everything, um, all the major top things that you need in the right amounts in the right forms and it's the one that I use myself I'm I don't get paid by this company or anything but I I use their supplements um, and I've also seen I I started using it because I saw research showing that when they gave this particular supplement to a, a large group they've done uh, three studies on it now with postmenopausal women with bone health problems and they've had really terrific success with it and I have found it helpful for myself as well. Um, it's a company called Algecal, A-L-G-A-E-C-A-L. Uh, they have a website, and you can go read about their product and their, you know, the research that they've done and everything on their website. Um, and it's since it combines everything for you, it's probably more cost effective since you don't, you know, you don't. For one thing, I don't know about you, but I don't want to take 50 different pills every day. I'd rather just take a couple of things. I think everybody should be taking a good multiple vitamin just to kind of cover the bases and give you some health insurance overall. And then um, then I think that the three major nutrients you need to supplement for bone health are uh, calcium, calcium citrate, okay, is what you'd want, and uh, vitamin D, vitamin D3, and lastly, vitamin K2, uh, the MK7 form. So those are the three. And the Algecal uh, supplies all of that. Um, it supplies a particularly well-absorbed form of calcium that's been shown in you know, medical research to do a really good job of um, being absorbed into bones and helping to activate the processes that help bone build healthily. And uh, so that, that's what I would recommend. But you, well, how to say this. What I would truly recommend, and it takes a little bit of work, you know, um, it'll take you a few hours to do it. I would get a copy of Your Bones, okay? It's uh, published by a nonprofit organization. It's not expensive. Um, it's on Amazon. It's, I think it's like 10 or $12 now. Um, they kept, I added more than 100 pages to the second edition of it, and they kept the price the same. So, and I walk you through all the nutrients that you need, and how to analyze what your diet is actually supplying for you because you can't know how much you need to supplement 
until you know what your diet is actually providing you. And then also, you know, you want to run some of these very basic tests like the vitamin D, the check, the blood test to see what your vitamin D levels are. And if you're, you know, if you're a woman who's getting close to menopause or you're menopausal, you certainly want to have um, a DEXA run to check and see what your bone density is. And you might also want to have a CTX scan run, which checks to see how how much calcium is being offloaded from your bones from your, in your body. And once you have that information, you can design for yourself the very best protocol for you, okay? The, the, the problem with the generalized statements is you're not an abstract thing. You're a real human being, and your needs may be specific. Mine certainly were. I mean, I need a lot more vitamin D than the average person, a lot more. Most people need two to 5,000 IU of vitamin D3 a day to have healthy bones. I need 10,000, and if I don't get it, like the other women in my family who unfortunately didn't know this, um, my bones will not build, and I'll have osteoporosis, and I'll die early. So these are the things you need to find out about yourself, and it it does take a little bit of effort, but it's, you know, what what's more important than your health? Nothing. You know, without our health, we can't live well, and we certainly don't enjoy our lives, and we can't be around to have fun with our grandchildren, right? So... My plan is to be in really good shape when I'm 85, and I want to have a really good time with my grandchildren. And when I retire, I want to be able to enjoy it. And I wish the same for you, you know. So I I urge you to take the time to read the material and learn about yourself. You know, nobody cares about your body more than you do. Your doctor is not going to spend, you know, most doctors are allowed to spend 10 or 15 minutes with a patient. They can't do this kind of research for you. You need to do it and take it into your doctor and say, these are the tests that I really want to have run. And once you get those test results and you've looked at your diet, then you can figure out exactly what you need. And you can have healthy bones. And fortunately, the same diet works for pretty much everything else. A healthy diet and these um, healthy nutrients will help you prevent cardiovascular disease and diabetes and Alzheimer's and pretty much and cancer and pretty much any nasty thing you can think of. So it's truly worth the effort. And it takes some effort, as you were saying, because you have to be aware specifically about your needs. You have to be aware about the nutrients. One of the things that you talk about in the book that I've seen in very few places is that not all Leafy greens have the same nutrients, and even in their raw form versus their cooked form, they have different nutrients. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, the, you know, the leafy greens that are the healthiest for us um, are things like uh, kale and Swiss chard and romaine lettuce, um, the really dark leafy greens. The um, iceberg lettuce, for example, has virtually uh, very few nutrients in it. It's not, you know, it tastes good and it's crunchy and it's it's nice um, chopped up in some food things that we like, but it's not the best option. You'd be much better off with uh, romaine if you like that. Or, you know, so spring mixes that you can now get in the grocery store that are colored. You know, some of them have like purple lettuces and things in them. Those have more nutrients in them. 
another issue is how the food was grown. Okay, Organically grown food has been shown now in quite a few studies to have more minerals in it, a lot, a lot more, and um, to be healthier for you because when you consume conventionally grown food that has pesticide residues in it, guess what? Pesticide residues cause inflammation in your body. And inflammation activates osteoclasts and you lose bone. So for, I know online you can check uh, the Environmental Working Group has a list of what they call the dirty dozen, and those are the foods with the most pesticides in them. It would be great to look at that list. Um, you can also find it on the World's Healthiest Foods. That's a nonprofit website that has a lot of wonderful information about food and Great recipes, uh, no advertising. It's completely funded by a foundation. That's called the World's Healthiest Foods. Um, I helped create that website, and it now gets 4 million unique visitors every month uh, with no advertising. Uh, we, you know, the Italian Foundation who funds it accepts no advertising. And the only directive uh, for us who are running the website is to do really good scientific work um, and back up everything very clearly with good science. So that's a helpful website uh, that explains about organic food and which foods are, you know, have the most pesticide residues and which foods are cleaner. There are some conventionally grown foods that are fine. They don't have a lot of pesticide residues and you can save the money, you know, on those. But the ones that have, well, here's a scary fact. Um, apples are one of the foods that have the absolute most pesticide residues if they're conventionally grown. And you think about how uh, you know, apples are apple juice, apples are kids. That's, they love apples, and we eat a lot of apples. So, you know, if possible, try to give your children organic apples and eat those yourself. Um, so that's those are some good resources for that. But overall, you want to try ascent, mainly to just eat real food. The less processed it is, uh, the less additives it has, the less packaging it has, the healthier the food is for you typically, uh, that you're going to find the healthier foods around the perimeter of the grocery store in the refrigerator sections because they deteriorate if they're not refrigerated, whereas the stuff on the shelf will keep for years. You know, it doesn't have really live nutrients in it, and so it doesn't, it doesn't deteriorate. It, one of the things that you had mentioned when we spoke earlier was that the change in diet that many immigrants adopt as they become acculturated is not always a good thing because they adopt that sad uh, diet that you were talking about. What would you like to tell us about that? Well, the, the traditional diet of people of Hispanic origin is fabulous. It's, it's a gorgeous diet, and I don't know why. You know, people prefer the American, Americanized, uh, processed, overly processed junk food to it. Um, I would just, and I think that that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned when I was uh, looking at the research about uh, osteoporosis, particularly in relation to people of Hispanic descent, was that even in the, um, in the countries where the, the, the uh, standard of living is supposedly not good and people are poorer, they're a lot healthier because they're eating this traditional diet. And it's, you know, the, the, the basis of it, the, the most food in it are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, you know, legumes, 
seeds, lots of herbs and spices, uh, fish and seafood, which I know you can get, you know, readily in Florida. Um, and then, you know, those are the main things. And then at the upper levels where you're eating less are poultry, eggs, cheese, and yogurt. And at the very top where you're supposed to be eating just a tiny little amount of it are meat and sweets. So we've kind of reversed that in the United States. We eat a lot of meat. We don't eat much vegetables. Uh, we don't eat whole grains. We eat processed grains that, you know, re- are refined with a lot of additives and, um, you know, but I think people are finally starting to eat more fish and seafood. At least I live in Seattle, so we have access to really good fish, and and people eat a lot of fish here. I'm not sure about Florida. But the the main thing I would say is, hey, go back to your, you know, your traditional diet if you possibly can. If you have um, any grandparents or any people around that know some of the wonderful traditional recipes, Start enjoying them, and you'll be you know you'll be healthier, and you'll it'll also cost you less money. The less processed food is less expensive. You get more bang for the buck nutritionally and uh, with your wallet if you eat more whole foods. You also talk about the importance of exercise. It's not just eating well, you say, but you also have to exercise. What would you share with us about that? Weight bearing exercise. So uh, one of the things that I discuss in the book is how bones, uh, talking about how bones build is that, and and why women have smaller bones than men, is that when we have, you know, our muscles attached to our bones, okay, and when we have muscular contractions, it puts a stress on the bone, and when your bones get stressed by exercise, that sends a signal to them to get stronger, and so they do, okay, so men have larger muscles than women, so they have stronger contractions against their bone than women, and they build thicker, heavier bones than women. Okay? Um, you can make up for this by getting a lot of exercise. And it doesn't really matter. Well, swimming isn't a good exercise because it's not weight-bearing. But you have to put weight on your bones to have it you know, pull and really stress them. But pretty much anything else you like to do, uh, it, just get out and do it for a half an hour or so a day. Take a take a walk. You know that you can. In Florida, I know it gets pretty hot in well, at least in the summer. It should be cooling off by now. But you know, take a walk in the early evening or the early morning. Uh, if you like dancing, you know, go go out and dance. Uh, do a Zumba class. Or um, I personally really like Pilates. I like it so much. I became certified to be a Scott Pilates instructor. Um, and I wrote a bunch about that in the book and why Pilates is so helpful for you because it um, it I, it puts stress right where you want it on those bone areas of bone that you really want to strengthen to not break a hip and to keep your spine erect. But um, any kind of weightlifting class, I know there's I don't know if you've ever heard of body pump. That's a, like a weightlifting class. You go in and you lift weights to music. It's really fun. Uh, you can do it for an hour, a couple of times a week. It'll really help you build and maintain bone. But it, it pretty much doesn't matter what you do, just so long as you get out and move around and exercise. But you need to do it consistently. You need to get out and move around for, you know, at least a half an hour to an hour, um, most every day, to have positive effects on your bones. And you know, you look at um, one way to make this point is if you look at astronauts going into space, 
one of the huge concerns for astronauts and their health is that when they're in space and they're not working against gravity and they're not exercising and moving around against gravity, they lose bone really fast. Uh, so do people who have been hospitalized. If, you've, um, if you know anybody who's been hospitalized for you know, some kind of surgery, nowadays they get people up as quickly as possible and they have you moving around as quickly as possible because if you're lying in bed, you start to lose bone and it happens really quickly. So um, my advice is it doesn't matter what kind of weight-bearing exercise you do. Just get out and do something and do it consistently. Find things that you really enjoy and share them with your friends and your loved ones and, and get out and have fun and have healthy bones. And, of course, if you walk in the sun, then you get two benefits because you're getting exercise at the same time, hopefully, that you're absorbing some vitamin D. Is that right? Exactly, but you, you know, in terms of us um, wrinkle-fearing women, I certainly am one of those, you, you know, put some sunscreen on your face and then leave your arms and legs exposed for at least a half an hour and then put sunscreen on and so you won't get wrinkles and you will build some vitamin D. Now, the vitamin D... Does it matter whether you go early in the morning? Because, for example, they say that the worst rays in terms of damage to your skin, certainly in subtropical climates like Florida, are in the middle of the day. Can you walk in the early morning or in the evening and still get the same kind of benefits that you would? You'll get the most benefit if you're if you're um, out when the sun is really at its peak. But I would think that 2 or 3 o'clock should be fine. You know, really early in the morning when the sun is just coming up, unless it's particularly really bright, it's not going to have the same kind of effect as as uh, later in the day when it's more um, at the apex because this, the rays are coming down at an angle. And um, they have to come down at a particular angle for it to be the most effective. I know here in Seattle, even when it's sunny, if the rays aren't coming in at the appropriate angle, like in the higher latitudes, they don't, it's not as effective. And so even on a sunny day here, we, we still have to pop our vitamin D pills if we want to have adequate vitamin D. So my recommendation would be, you know, go, go out for a late afternoon walk. That should be fine. Other than your bones, Lara, I know you've mentioned several resources for those people who want to learn more about their nutrition and their lifestyle and how they can keep healthy. Would you share with those uh, with us one more time the, the sort of sure. your top three? Sure. Um, so I look at uh, the world's healthiest foods. It's www.whfoods.org. It's a wonderful website. has all kinds of great information, pretty much anything you want to know about food. And, and nutrients and um, your there's even a, a little panel um, automated test you can do to plug in your diet and see what nutrients it's lacking the most and then it'll link you to recipes that are high in those nutrients um, and then environmental working group there that's a good resource uh, ewg.org you can go there to find the foods that are the highest in pesticides and the lowest in pesticides. Okay, but World's Healthiest Foods will also have that information. And um, and then Your Bones, you know, the book. I tried to go through every single thing that we've talked about in much detail there and explain to you how to check for yourself 
exactly where you are and exactly what you need, uh, not some mythical average person in the in a medical study, you know, report. So those would be the three things that I would I would recommend. What three steps, as opposed to resources, would you advise our listeners who are, for the first time, becoming aware of these issues that we've discussed today, your bone health and the role of nutrition versus, let's call them artificial medications, what three steps would you share with them that they might take toward starting in the right direction? I think the most important thing is, you know, many people are already taking calcium supplements um, and many people are taking vitamin D supplements as with the calcium. If you're taking calcium and vitamin D, you absolutely have to make sure that you're getting adequate K2, uh, the MK7 form of K2. Okay, I cannot emphasize how important this is enough. Studies came out about a year ago showing that people who took calcium and vitamin D had an increased risk for heart attacks and strokes. Now that we've had all this discussion, you probably can figure out why that has happened. It's because they didn't have enough K2. The calcium was being put into their arteries and not into their bones. You must have adequate K2 to make sure that that calcium you're absorbing because you're getting the vitamin D okay, is going into your bones and is not going into your arteries is being actively kept out of your arteries by vitamin K2. So those three nutrients that are critical for bone health have to be in balance, okay? Most people need 1,200 milligrams of calcium, and I would recommend calcium citrate per day or, or the AlgaCal, okay? Most people need 2,000 IU of vitamin D3 a day, although many people need as much as 5,000 IU a day. And then there are the weird outliers like myself who need about 10,000 IU a day. Uh, you can find that out by having your vitamin D levels checked. Okay? You do that by having a blood draw. And what they check is the circulating form of vitamin D, which is 25 parenthesis OH parenthesis D3. That's the circulating form. And you want it to be in the range of 60 to 80 nanograms per ml. That's what you want to check for vitamin D. Um, once you've done, you've gotten your vitamin D adequate, your cal- you're taking your calcium and you're taking K2, then I think the next thing I would recommend is to do your full diet analysis, make sure you're getting all the vitamins that are required for bone health. Um, you know, those three are the top three, but all of them that I discuss in the book are important and they're supplied by a healthy diet. Okay, so you may be very happy to see that you're getting most of these, and if you're not, you can certainly increase your consumption of foods that provide them, or you can, you know, get a multiple vitamin or whatever to provide um, what you're lacking. And then, you know, something we didn't talk about that I would like to just mention as a final thing is if you are a person with any kind of chronic ailment that you cannot get rid of, you've tried various things and you have been unable to get rid of an ailment like um, asthma, for example, okay, or some kind of uh, dermatitis skin conditions or digestive upsets or whatever. You've tried things and you're not being able to get rid of it. Consider eliminating wheat and gluten-containing grains from your diet. Um, you can do a couple of weeks trial and see if your symptoms improve. 
the latest research is showing that about 80% of us get a reaction to wheat. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a digestive issue, a digestive reaction. It can be other inflammatory processes in the body that wheat triggers. And so we are finding with our own patients that many, many times if somebody has some kind of chronic issue and we haven't been able to help them clear it out, if we take them off wheat, they get better. So it's something you might consider. Um, And if you've been off the wheat for, oh, two weeks to a month, you should, if, if it's an issue for you, you'll start to notice that you, your symptoms are going away. Thank you, Lara, for joining us today from Seattle, Washington. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Lara Pizzorno, NDIV, who discussed your bones, how you can prevent osteoporosis and have strong bones for life naturally. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.